0: Affordable housing oftentimes brings about this tension and this confusion that I don't want that kind of housing in my neighborhood. You know, the HUD actually talks about this term as the NIMBY principle. Well, not in my backyard principle, nationally applies at the state level. And so sometimes when we think of affordable housing, we have an idea of how it looks. But the alternative is thinking about attainable housing and recognizing that it integrates with the kind of housing that you already see. We're our
1: own worst enemy sometimes when it comes to affordable housing. Not to mention, in addition to that, lack of funding. But now we have the American Rescue Act, which has funding and has gap financing and has kind of opened the doors. And to me, it's a great opportunity to look at all forms of affordable housing, starting with shelter, permanent supportive housing, rapid rehousing, attainable housing, workforce housing. We have the opportunity before us. And I hope as a community, we take advantage of that.
2: It would be amazing to get elected officials at the state and local levels all on the same page, agreeing that housing investments is a priority and understanding how investments in housing will be impactful across the board and into other sectors for the economy, for the community. There's so much that providing safe, affordable housing for everybody can bring to our communities.
3: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. And in case you've been living under a rock for the last few years, here are two truths that will be at the center of today's episode. Number one, housing is health. And number two, the dearth of supportive, affordable, and workforce housing in Arizona continues to rear its head when it comes to Arizona residents and their ability to be well. Never was the idea of housing as health made more obvious than during the worst moments of the COVID-19 pandemic. Those moments were an exclamation point on what the data has already told us for years. Health outcomes are dramatically better and healthcare costs are dramatically lower when Arizonans have affordable quality housing for shelter and respite. The pandemic continues, particularly with the rise of the Delta variant, extreme heat has already left its mark on Arizonans, and yet the struggle for more housing that's available to more people continues. You're about to hear from three Arizona experts about why that is the case and what we can do about it. Spoiler alert, a big element that we're missing rhymes with analytical skill. Our experts have a lot to share, including multiple publications and an important toolkit, links to all of which are found in our show notes. So let's get to it. It's time to talk about inclusionary zoning, tech, NIMBYism, ADUs, teacherages, a trust fund, and so much more as of July 6, 2021. Today, we have three incredible people talking to us about all of the challenges and opportunities related to housing. First off, we have Joanna Carr. She is the Research and Policy Director at Arizona Housing Coalition, also with 10 years direct experience working with homeless folks in both the United States and the UK. Joanna, how are you?
2: I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to join the conversation today.
3: We also have with us today Darlene Newsom. in addition to founding an amazing organization known as UMOM, she also has 44 years of experience working with homelessness and is currently a consultant with Vitalist Health Foundation. Darlene, how's it going?
1: Great. And thank you for the opportunity to be part of this discussion.
3: Last but certainly not least, not even close, Asha Devanini. Asha, you have most recently working with Vitalist. You also just got your JD. You are now a lawyer. Welcome to the show and thank you for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me, John. And it's exciting as an intern to come full circle from listening to these podcasts to now speaking on one.
3: All right, Joanna, I'm going to start with you. Most people they are reading things in the paper about the eviction moratorium and there's lots of feelings about that they know there's some sort of affordable housing issue but they don't know what's really going on or why it's going on start there and help people understand better what's going on with housing in arizona
2: sure well before the pandemic then we already had A very serious affordable housing crisis across Arizona and that's only really been made worse by the pandemic as households have really struggled to make ends meet. And so we are in a position where sort of coming through the pandemic we are losing our housing stock. Rental market is just getting more and more expensive. Our real estate market is booming and house prices are rising and so the affordability crisis is unfortunately getting a whole lot worse in terms of the eviction issue again we we were ranking high in terms of evictions across Arizona prior to the pandemic and it's been really difficult to kind of get a grasp as to exactly how many people are at risk of evictions across the state I and mean, there's a lot of different figures coming out but we know that there's a lot of households that are at high risk of eviction coming through the moratorium, coming to an end and coming through the, the pandemic. So we have the moratorium that is offering some protections renters across the state. And the idea is that the moratorium should be providing protections those that are renting properties to keep them housed. But the reality is that there's a lot of flaws in that moratorium. And evictions are still being carried out. The eviction moratorium has been extended until the end of July, which is great because we really need more time. What's happened is that the federal government has provided Arizona with a number of investments for emergency rental assistance. But the reality is that getting all of those funds administered has been a challenge. And so we certainly need more time to get funds to the landlords. So when the moratorium lifts at the end of the month, we're not really sure exactly how many people are going to be evicted. But we hear a lot about the eviction tsunami. And that's what we're anticipating. And that's the fear that's going to flood our homeless system, which is already in huge demand.
3: Arlene, some people read about this stuff. You actually have worked in it for a long, long time. How did we get this way? And what can we actually do policy-wise? Because most people think, well, it's just what it is because the market says what the market says.
1: Well, we've had many limitations in the state of Arizona. What we have seen is rents going up and wages not going up. And so when you have rents going up 45% or more, and wages only increasing by about 15%, eventually that gap gets bigger and bigger. And what Joanna said about COVID, that only made it worse. But you also have a state that has a lot of policies that do not lend itself to building affordable housing. And many of the other states have used other mechanisms like building additional dwelling units is one of them. LA had a lot of success with that. In building those additional units. And I know that we're doing a pilot project right now in Tucson to try to get rid of some of those regulations around those additional dwelling units and doing some forgiveness for individuals who have built them, but also building some incentives for people to rent to those who need affordable housing. But the problem is, is that we've had very limited resources, very limited resources from the state And we relied on 9% tax credits, which is great, but they're a long time coming. When a project is awarded, you're looking at two or three years down the road that you're going to get 65 more units when you need 165,000 units in the state. And so just for an example, we built a project South 7th Village a couple years ago, and there were 90 units and there were 400 applicants for those 90 units. So each of our affordable housing complexes have 200 plus on their wait list to move in. And in the meantime, what happens is they lose their housing and then they end up in shelters or they end up on the street. So we need to build into our system some more policies that would lend itself to building more affordable housing and doing more landlord incentives so more landlords are willing to create and rent to some of the individuals and families that need an affordable rate.
3: Joanna, let's talk about some of the things that Darlene just brought up. Accessory dwelling units, trying to figure out how to get more affordable housing. There's actually multiple kinds of housing stock to talk about. There's permanent supportive housing. There's affordable housing. There's attainable housing, which we're going to get to in a little bit. Where are we as a state compared to others? Are we doing better? Are we doing worse? Is this a chronic problem throughout the country? How do we wrap our heads around this?
2: Well, in terms of where we are as a state, and as Darlene mentioned, we have a lot of barriers that are presented within policy that really makes it incredibly challenging to create enough affordable housing that we need. So one of those examples is inclusionary zoning. So this is a policy that's been used in other states that really helps to increase supply. And that works by requiring developers to include a certain percentage of affordable units in new developments. And it's a great model because it creates mixed income communities that research has shown is really effective for improving life success and family outcomes. And then if a developer chooses not to include affordable units, there's an alternative to allow for or or to enforce a fee for a housing trust fund. So it's a really great model. And Arizona is one of only three states in the country that prohibits inclusionary zoning. But that's one of the, the main examples I always talk about as to the barriers that we have within our state. And there's, there's others. The short-term rental issue is huge here in Arizona. So it was 2016 that the governor signed a bill that prevents local municipalities from regulating short-term rentals. Um, and that creates a huge problem, especially in our high tourist areas like Flagstaff, Sedona and Scottsdale, because essentially a property owner has The freedom then to rent their unit for a short term rental, which is more lucrative in most cases. So I always talk about the example from Sedona that saw a really huge increase in short term rentals once this bill was passed. And it also creates serious hesitancy over zoning policies that allow for ADUs. So you mentioned ADUs, accessory dwelling units, which I think makes so much sense within our communities, especially in our historic areas, such as Tucson and Phoenix, where we have oftentimes older properties have um, accessory dwelling units already existing. So if we can leverage those for affordable housing, it makes a lot of sense. Those buildings already exist. They're going to be naturally affordable, but... The short-term rental prohibition is really tricky because then how do you stop a property owner from using their ADU for a short-term rental over a long-term rental, which is less lucrative? So there's a lot of barriers. There's a lot more sort of at the, the state level. And I just find that there's a lot of municipalities that are doing the great work to research what practices are possible, but coming up against these state law barriers is a real challenge.
3: So a lot going on, most of it not great, Mm -hmm. but Asha, some things are turning out in a positive way and in an innovative way. Talk to us about attainable housing, what it means, how it works and where we're having a positive impact.
0: Absolutely. So, attainable housing is something we're excited to talk about because not only has it been a solution regionally in the Southwest, take a state like California, especially Northern California, where we all know it's hard to live in the communities that you serve. And that rule applies for teachers, especially who are oftentimes extremely underpaid. And you take a state like Arizona, where you have some of the lowest teacher salaries in the country, and the wage penalty is so high that the ability to rent a home, let alone purchase a home, is not a question for most of these teachers. And so attainable housing is a way where the school district can work with the community, can work with private entities who are interested in making this kind of change and offer home units whether that's as a rental or for ownership to the teachers that serve the district and so you think about arizona and how this is not just a success story in other states but it has been done here and Vail unified school district built 24 tiny homes on a 14 acre lot open to their teachers and their educators so When you think about education and you think about housing and you think about the intersection of those two, oftentimes the difficulty is attracting and retaining talented educators. And if they have to take on additional forms of employment so they can be financially afloat, they're distracted and they're tired and they're not able to be fully checked into the community that they're serving. And so if they can send their kids to the same schools where they're teaching and they're able to be available for after-school programs, then you have greater teacher satisfaction. And as a result, you have a stronger, healthier, happier community.
3: Yeah, and the alternative right now is a teacher commutes for an hour or 45 minutes or whatever it might be. And so, A, not part of the community, not, not of the neighborhood. And B, again, exhausted, stressed from commuting. It's a win-win and attainable housing almost always, if I'm not mistaken, one of its foundational principles is getting the schools themselves to use their property, their land. And that's one of the keys to the equation, correct? Correct.
0: Yes. And let's talk about that because we actually surveyed some superintendents from schools across the state. And there is a great interest to do this work. Oftentimes schools have unused parcels of land, or even if they're unused because nothing's been developed, they're land that can't be used in the same way anymore. And so you can repurpose these parcels when you're able to do this strategically. And there's legal and financial pathways to do this. And if you take some of these areas and you can work with a habitat for humanity for example a boys and girls club you can find stakeholders who are willing to work with you so you can transform this into housing even if the schools don't want to be caught up in the management of this property that's acceptable the fact that schools have certain immunities from zoning ordinances remains true as long as the school is in ownership of the land and so there is this idea of teacherages, which so far is only an option in rural Arizona. But as we know, the housing crisis doesn't distinguish rural versus urban. And so the shortage is everywhere. So one of the policy mechanisms is simply changing the statute to eliminate the word rural and build these teacherages across the entire state. You know, Alternatively, there are other ways to do this, but that's one state level change that I think we all should be advocating for.
3: Asha, kind of sounds like maybe you wrote a publication on this or something.
0: Maybe I did. And everyone should check out the Attainable Housing Report because I got a shameless plug right there. And we have lots of information about the pathways, whether that's the funding mechanisms and tax credits, which Darlene is certainly more of an expert on than I am. Or that's thinking about how to get around the gift clause, which happens to be sometimes an obstacle that comes to mind. How can the school just give away land? It's public land, it has to be for a public use, but the legal precedents on our side. This is something that's really doable and, and actionable right in
1: the next couple of months. We don't have to wait years for this change to happen.
3: Arlene, let's talk about some of those policy challenges.
1: I think that Asha touched upon Article 15, the teacherages, and I think that this coming session, We'll be seeing a change in how it was written to remove the rural. Some of the areas have already started providing housing for years for their teachers up in Tuba City, Chinle, in that area. It's been part of the fringe benefit package offered to teachers. But one of the key elements I think that we need to look at here is zoning, because a lot of times zoning is a major barrier in building affordable housing but the zoning laws do not apply to school districts. And so school districts would be free to use their land and not have to go through the process of rezoning the land, because a lot of times that can delay or prevent affordable housing from being built. And so to me, it is a win-win. look at building attainable housing on school property, we just don't look at housing. We look at partnering with other kinds of services. Many of the school districts already offer health care, dental clinics. One of the big areas that teachers need help is with child care, especially from birth through age five. So combining attainable housing with other kinds of services that can benefit the school the pupils, the teachers. And it's just not the teachers that need this affordable housing. It's also the support staff that work at the schools. We're talking about the administrative staff, the clerical, the individuals who work in the kitchen, the janitorial staff. All of that would be available. And there's no reason why we couldn't offer it, too, to the surrounding community and to pair school districts together that bump against each other. Maybe three Urban school districts would want to build something and it may not be right next to the school because a lot of times schools have the ability to land bank with the projection of building additional schools. But with the declining enrollment with the public school system, many of them have buildings that they could repurpose now or land that could be used to build attainable housing in the community.
3: Asha, this just sounds like it should have happened a long time ago, and it definitely needs to happen now. But clearly, as you said, there are some policy barriers. There are also just some barriers to understanding. Talk about those.
1: I
0: think that's an amazing point, because one of the big parts of us trying to figure out how to offer this publication as a resource guide for schools and for community members was even just making that transition from affordable housing to attainable housing and I recognize that sometimes our terminology informs the way we perceive things and that's just a reality and so affordable housing oftentimes brings about this tension and this confusion that I don't want that kind of housing in my neighborhood you know the HUD actually talks about this term as the NIMBY principle. Well, not in my backyard principle, nationally applies at the state level. And so sometimes when we think of affordable housing, we have an idea of how it looks. But the alternative is thinking about attainable housing and recognizing that it integrates with the kind of housing that you already see. And we actually offer pictures of examples of how this housing can be just as attractive and just as welcoming as any other property or residential area in the community. And so getting that community perception to shift is one of the barriers to policy changes as well, actually, and getting school board support. So that's kind of like a very intertwined relationship that you have to address. But if you can get the community support that you need, then it actually makes it even easier to pass these ballot measures to fund general obligation bonds to build this kind of stuff. And so... Even if you can't get the policy support initially, there are workarounds, but the ideal scenario is that you teach the community because these are the families that work and live in this community. Oftentimes they're the ones who are the parents of the kids going to the schools where we wanna offer attainable housing to the teachers. And so trying to make sure that the conversation is focused on how attainable housing creates opportunities for everybody that lives in the district is the way that you make the policy change and the resistance to pass these kinds of measures in the first place.
3: Joanna, I'm sure you've seen it time and time again, whether it's transit-oriented development, whether it's permanent supportive housing, affordable housing, attainable housing, neighborhoods and communities, they struggle, they fight. And then once it's built, they go, wow, that looks great. I wish they'd made it bigger.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, this is a huge problem. So NIMBYism is just a huge barrier to affordable housing development. And when I think about what we need to do to advance affordable housing, looking at both public will and political will is so important. I hear from so many communities around the state that you'll have communities that talk about, oh, yes, we're behind affordable housing. We need to address the housing crisis. And then when it comes to a zoning request for an affordable housing development, those same Communities peel back and say, "Oh, oh, but not, not in our neighbourhood. Let's, let's move this somewhere else." And so it's a huge issue, and there's just so much stigma attached to affordable housing. There's just so many myths. The stigma attached to housing will reduce our property values. Affordable housing will bring crime to our neighbourhoods, and actually, oftentimes the opposite is true. Affordable housing developments actually raise the values within communities and raise aspiration and are great for community growth. And so you're right, you know, once the, these properties are developed, communities step back and say, oh, yeah, it looks nice. Like we're happy with this. And so we need to really think about how we can educate our communities And I think that that's so much effort. I always talk about, um, I don't know if you heard about the Minneapolis 2040 plan. They passed a really important plan that actually allows rezoning across the whole city. They allow multifamily zoning where previously it was all single family zoning. And that's huge for affordable housing development. But they had to engage in a two year community plan to engage the community around this effort just to get this plan passed. So it kind of goes to show the effort that is needed, but they did such a great job at engaging the community through events, just speaking to people one-on-one about what this means for their community, why it's important, the history of redlining, et cetera. And I really think that that's what we, we need in our communities, is a really targeted anti-stigma campaign.
3: And really, people don't get it. Attainable housing, by the way, the work of helping school staff and teachers be closer to their schools, it's actually a subset, if you will, of workforce housing. Part of the conversation, Joanna, needs to be like, hey, the people who work here can't live here right now. And that just doesn't seem right, does it?
2: Absolutely. I mean, we're about teachers, but so many people are struggling to to live by their jobs. You know, we hear of police sleeping in their cars overnight because their commute is just so far away. So it affects so many people. And I think workforce housing has to be a huge conversation right now. And this is where we can talk about the business community too and how the business community can get behind this. Businesses will lose workforce if their workforce has nowhere to live. And then we talked earlier about the impact of a long commute, what impact that has on worker effectiveness, what impact stress has on worker effectiveness. And so businesses investing in workforce housing is really critical.
3: Now, Asha got her plug. You're going to get yours now. So you've literally wrote the book on the landscape as it pertains to housing in Arizona. Talk about your publication with the Arizona Housing Coalition, what's in it and why people should read it.
2: Earlier this year, we published our affordable housing toolkit, for municipalities. So it's targeted at municipalities around Arizona. And the idea is that we wanted to lay out what is our landscape? Why do we need more affordable housing? How did COVID-19 impact that? And then really focus down on what tools are already available for affordable housing that municipalities can use to increase affordable housing within their regions, but also what barriers exist so we talk about inclusion rezoning and the short-term rental prohibition and all of those barriers that we have at the state level but what we really wanted to get out of the toolkit is not let's just talk about the barriers and the difficulties that we have but how can we mitigate those barriers and so a large part of the toolkit is talking about what best practices municipalities can explore increase affordable housing so for example to mitigate the issue of the inability to enforce inclusionary zoning what options do municipalities have to incentivize developers to build affordable housing so looking at various incentives such as reducing parking requirements which sounds menial but it's actually huge that can make a huge difference or increasing density to allow more units on a single plot of land. And then talking about zoning, being more flexible with zoning ordinances is huge. So yeah, we really wanted to target municipalities because municipalities play such a huge role in coordinating affordable housing, providing the resources, engaging with developers and creating those partnerships so our hope is that municipalities will be able to use that right. toolkit and be encouraged to create strategic plans around affordable housing and move forward with strategies.
3: Yeah, a lot of people don't understand those barriers. And to some, it's like minutia. But to put your point about parking is one gas pump equals two parking spaces. Mm-hmm. A four-foot deep pool equals 30 parking spaces and an eight-foot deep pool equals 60 parking spaces. As if you can stack the bodies in the pool, it's kind of crazy. It's almost byzantine so is the toolkit the way out
1: i hope
2: so we really hope that it will just provide the encouragement and the tools the municipalities need so but there's there's more to add and we're hoping that there'll be a second edition coming out next year because there's just so much that municipalities can consider
1: an affordable housing builder for the past 10, 15 years in Arizona and and working with primarily the city of Phoenix and the the city of of Glendale. We were building 19 West, which is in the north central corridor of Phoenix. It took us a year to get some of the zoning through. So once the 9% tax credits came to the agency, it took a year because of neighborhood opposition And part of that was education, awareness, being afraid. It's not that they weren't supportive. They had a different vision. And talking about who would be living in the complex, people who work in the community, the people that work at Albertsons, work at Walgreens. I went to the local school district, the local elementary school, and talked to the principal. And I said, this is what's going to be happening And you're going to have an influx of children coming in because we're building 60 units for families. And she said, when you start to rent, please come here first, because we have a teacher living in an RV with two children. And so part of the issue with building 19 West was height restrictions. And so we had to go through the process of permitting and rezoning. And the city, you have to wait till they have certain meetings. So there's no fast tracking. And I think for cities to have a navigator on board just for affordable housing to help with that process and expedite that process and remove the barriers, because people don't realize, I mean, a barrier to us, we delayed opening by three weeks because an inspector came out and said we had the wrong size rock in the garden. We had to remove the rock, put new rock in, and then we had to schedule another inspection. And so in the meantime, you've got families who are living on the edge who became homeless because of the size of the rock we were using. Now, how ridiculous (laughs) is that? And so we need to really take a hard look at all of those barriers, streamlining, and I think having a navigator just with the city just to walk alongside developers to help speed along the process, it's one idea. But we create some of our own policies and barriers. And we're our own worst enemy sometimes when it comes to affordable housing. Not to mention, in addition to that, lack of funding. But now we have the American Rescue Act, which has funding and has gap financing and has kind of opened the doors. And to me, it's a great opportunity to look at all forms of affordable housing, starting with shelter, permanent supportive housing, rapid rehousing, attainable housing, workforce housing. We have the opportunity before us. And I hope as a community, we take advantage of that.
3: Yeah, what better way to use one-time dollars than to invest it into affordable, attainable, supportive, and workforce housing, it'd be absolutely the right way to go. No question about that. Darlene. You're the only one who hasn't gotten a chance to talk about a publication, and you have one that you edited recently. It's brand new. It's all about investment without displacement. Talk about that executive summary that you edited.
1: The executive summary really just does a high-level view of 73 different policies that we have in our state that prevents us from moving forward with affordable housing. Some of the policies, the accessory dwelling units is one of them. We talked about inclusionary zoning. We talked about the gift clause. And some of it is just additional dollars for emergency rental assistance. Home repairs is part of it. Having a special task force with the cities that just address affordable housing. I mentioned the navigator navigation before that. I mean, we've touched on a lot of those things. And I think what's unique about the paper is that it's not just about the money. It's about policies, and we're one of few states in several areas that has not adopted certain policies nationally. Many states are far ahead of us in doing that and doing subsidized rentals and just really looking outside the box and how can we get more people who are living on the streets, living on the edge, healthier. And I think it's even that much more important with what happened with COVID because we have a lot of individuals who were out of work during that period of time that do experience some level of trauma. And you start layering that on, and it's very difficult for them to move forward in their lives, especially if they've experienced trauma, and COVID has caused a lot of that trauma. And so we need to look at different ways that we can increase the services to lift the quality of life for a lot of the individuals who live in Arizona.
3: There really is so much work to be done to recover, especially since we were behind the eight ball before the pandemic even started. It is a little daunting, Joanna, but we also just emerged from a never-ending legislative session. Talk about the good news and the bad news from that, particularly when it comes to the trust fund and Lytech
2: just a bit of background. So the Housing Trust Fund was slashed during the Great Recession and capped at 2.5 million in 2010. So the Housing Trust Fund provided funds for housing investments and really provided a lot of investments for affordable housing. It was leveraging up to 40 million for housing related efforts at its prime. So when it was capped at 2.5 million in 2010 that was a huge loss. So The Arizona Housing Coalition and our members have worked tirelessly year on year to advocate for the full restoration of the housing trust fund. And last year, we came really close with a 15 million allocation into the housing trust fund. This year, the bill was sadly removed from the budget and The reason being was largely due to the significant investments that our state has received in stimulus funding from the federal government through COVID-19. What our legislature sort of agreed upon is that we have so many investments this year for housing and homelessness that they wanted to sort of remove the housing trust fund from the budget decisions. That was bad news. But the good news from that is that we do have a lot of stimulus funding, which hopefully I can speak to in a moment. But we will keep advocating since the stimulus funds are not long term and we need a robust and reliable funding source. But the good news is that what we're also advocating for is a state low income housing tax credit. So as Dali mentioned, you mentioned, know, developers were really relying upon the 9% low-income housing tax credit from the federal government, which is highly competitive and just not enough. And so we were advocating for a state low-income housing tax credit that was passed last week. So that was great because we've been advocating for this for at least three years now. So we still have to wait for the governor's signature. It's Senate Bill 1124, but we are anticipating um, the governor's signature soon. So it's definitely monumental. And what the state low-income tax credit will bring is a $160 million investment, which is the largest affordable housing state investment. So that's great, that's really good news. We're really happy about that and it's great success. And we have to really thank our members um, for really getting behind this. It's been a real push in this legislative session.
3: Talk about what you just mentioned, what is going on with American Rescue Plan dollars, what is going on with CARES Act dollars, and how do we think that will impact our housing efforts?
2: I keep hearing this phrase that we have a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to address affordable housing and homelessness with the stimulus funds, and I do not disagree with that we've been tracking stimulus fundings coming in for housing and homelessness through the various stimulus packages from the federal government and we've identified over 9 billion in funding opportunities for the state and local governments in Arizona now that doesn't mean that we have 9 billion sort of direct investments for housing and homelessness but These are the opportunities that we have that could be leveraged. It includes the state and local fiscal recovery funds, which make up a significant portion of this amount. But these funds are competitive with other sectors. So that makes up a large amount. um, And that being said, we have approximately $2.4 that we have tracked in allocations specifically for housing and homelessness related efforts. And that comes from the CARES Act that was passed in 2020, and the Consolidated Appropriations Act that provided us with our first investment of emergency rental assistance, which was a huge investment, and then the American Rescue Plan Act that was passed in the spring of this year. So there are still unspent funds in the CARES Act allocations around our state, and there's still significant amounts of emergency rental assistance funds. The American Rescue Plan Act dollars are largely still in discussion in regards to how they will be allocated. And this is the time for advocacy around this funding. So the funds really provide an opportunity to address a wide range of issues spanning the immediate needs of those experiencing homelessness um, to increasing the supply of affordable housing and support services. So we're really trying to make a push for all of this and also to focus on innovation. The pandemics left us with so many unused buildings, and this is just an example, such as hotels um, that can be converted really easily into non congregate shelter and then permanent housing. And so that's just one example of an innovation that can be used. And as we're seeing a rise in homelessness, when we, we see it anecdotally on our streets, you know, there's undeniably a rise. And so really engaging the community and engaging our elected officials to allocate some of these funds for innovative uses around housing and homelessness would really make a huge difference. But unfortunately, this all requires, again, political and public will. How the funds will be spent, especially with the state and local fiscal recovery funds, is really much dependent upon what individual jurisdictions view as a priority in terms of a COVID-19 response. So, you know, getting the will of the the mayors, the city managers, county supervisors, et cetera, is really important. But I feel that time is of an essence and we really have to move faster on this. And we have to work together as a community to kind of raise our voices and make the case for these funds to be allocated for our efforts.
3: Take a deep breath. Think back over this conversation for a second grab the magic wand that just appeared in front of you and tell us what you would use that magic wand on as it pertains to the next three to six months in housing. I'm going to start with Darlene.
1: I think that getting the money out as quickly as we can, we're under such a time constraint that I would like to see a lot of the dollars go towards housing. Our history is not good in developing affordable housing. And now we have the dollars, we have the opportunity. And many times with these affordable housing projects, our limitation is not having the gap financing. And when you build affordable housing, you layer funding. We've got that opportunity now to layer that funding and create more affordable housing. And it's just not just affordable housing from the ground up. It's also looking at different ways that you can do housing And providing landlords incentives to rent their units to somebody, or it could be a rental subsidy that might keep somebody housed for a period of time so they don't lose their housing. So, my magic wand would be we need to concentrate on that whole area of housing, keeping people housed and getting more people off the streets.
3: Asha, Darlene says we gotta act and we gotta be creative. How about you? What's your magic wand say?
1: I had to choose one
0: thing. I'm a policy-minded person, so I would love to see that Section 15 is amended so that teacherages can be built across the entire state of Arizona. And once we remove that policy barrier, you can start to address all of the other barriers like community perception and partnerships and collaboration. But that top-down obstacle removal is my dream.
3: Joanna, this is a tough question for you because you probably have a whole laundry list of things, but pick one for now for that magic wand.
2: one that I can choose which is really overriding and really impacts the possibilities that we have, and that would be political will. That for me is I see is a major barrier and I'm often quite disheartened (laughs) with the lack of political will. It would be amazing to get elected officials at the state and local levels all on the same page, agreeing that housing investments is a priority and understanding how investments in housing will be impactful across the board and into other sectors for the economy, for the community. There's so much that providing safe, affordable housing for everybody can bring to our communities. And so if we had the will of our elected officials, that can really impact everything that we talk about in terms of the policy changes, in terms of the funding decisions that are needed. So that would be my My wish.
3: It's fill-in-the-blank time, this time starting with Asha. Given everything that's going on right now at this moment, I'm still excited about blank and I know we will have done well when we get to 2022 if blank.
0: I see that there is an action point right now and that school administrators are willing to work in creative ways. And so I'm excited to see that there could be some meaningful regional collaboration and development on this stuff like immediately. So I would think it's a success by 2022 if you notice that it's not just Vail Unified School District or it's not just Yavapai Home of My Own program. You have across the state each version of each community's needs met by their school districts in a way that is accessible and makes everybody feel like they're in a healthier, more cohesive community.
3: Joanna, what about you? In spite of everything that's going on, you're excited about blank and you know, you're on the right track by 2022 if blank.
2: I'm excited about the funding opportunities that are coming from the federal government under the various stimulus packages and If we have municipal budgets around the state that have allocated their stimulus funds for housing and homelessness-related efforts, then I think we'll be in a good position to move forward.
3: Darlene, you've been making notes. I've been watching you. What do you got? Mm
1: -hmm. Definitely, I'm excited about the opportunity that the additional funding has given. Given my career in social services for 44 years in the state of Arizona, we've never had the opportunity that is before us now. I have always said it's gonna be a partnership between the private sector, the community, and the government to end homelessness. And I'm excited about the opportunity that we have that we're actually going to be able to get to what we call functional zero, where there is housing for everyone.
3: Thank you, Darlene, thank you, Asha, and thank you, Joanna. Together, you've raised the issues and the barriers, plus you've given us the resources, as well as some of the keys to the transformational changes we need. Folks, attainable housing for school districts needs to happen now. And if we can do it for teachers and school staff, why not do the same for law enforcement, the fire service, municipal employees, and those essential workers we've depended on but not appreciated with enough wage increases to make housing affordable? We've let the market set the math. But we haven't set up the math to help key people meet the market. As our guest said on multiple occasions, nimbyism shouldn't even be a thing. Today's housing developments of all types improve neighborhoods. The time is now for information, education, and advocacy. So, get yourself to the show notes and links to all the publications mentioned in this episode, including the Arizona Housing Coalition's Best Practice Toolkit. Then, as Joanna said, we have a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity right now So it's time to summon the much-needed political and public will that promise to drive transformational change. Of course, creating change is what this podcast is all about. Like we have with this 80th episode and the 79 before it, the Vitalist Spark podcast is focused on insights, strategies, and efforts that we all need to improve community health and well-being. We've been working to share the stories and insights regarding multiple aspects of this complex equation of health, which means you can check out our back catalog of podcast episodes focused on the pandemic, redistricting, the opioid crisis, affordable housing, food systems, Arizona tribes, schools, streets and open spaces, and so much more. There is a lot to listen to, featuring guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for now. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to The Vitalist Spark, just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.